Have you ever wondered about the many things Emperor Constantine influenced that live with us in the modern day? Well, do we have a story for you. And a little surprise. This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, do you know that kind of strange feeling you have sometimes that everybody has occasionally? Almost like you're being watched. Paul, 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 I am all too aware of the feeling of being all watched. It's something uh, I've, I've been quite used to for the past, for, for a while now. But it, it's probably a kind of a new feeling for you, Paul. And while it's strange at first, you'll get used to it. And we're saying this for a very good reason. And if you're watching, the, if you're watching this podcast on YouTube, you'll know exactly why we are mentioning that. Absolutely. So if you're listening to the audio-only version... This is a very fun announcement. We've actually very subtly teased and dropped hints for those who were listening closely, though we never made explicitly clear what we had in mind. We are now also offering this show as a video podcast on YouTube. In time, it'll be available on other services as well, the video podcast version that is on other platforms. But for the time being, it's exclusively on YouTube. And it's an opportunity for you who enjoy AD history so much to be in studio with your friends Patrick and Paul from the AD History Podcast. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we got to this point in our middle segment. But today, we got some big stuff ahead of us. Before that, you have an important announcement of your own. I do indeed. And I'm going to look directly to camera for this one, Paul. So hello, camera people. Uh, if you what if you if you it, it, on the day we're recording this very podcast is launch day for my second book. The original names was everything between a volume two. Uh, if you haven't pre-ordered your copy, well, now it's too late, but you don't need to pre-order anymore. You can just order a copy for yourself. It's available on Amazon. If you enjoyed the first book, Paul, I know you are a very big fan of the first book. Absolutely. Patrick Foot to the full. Yes, exactly. A good chunk of Patrick explaining names like he does on the channel. More of it on there. Don't want to talk about myself in the third person, but if you enjoyed the first book, if you enjoyed <laughs> Name Explained, if you enjoy ed education or history in general, because there's a lot of history in there as well, please do go check out the book. It would help me out so much, help support the channel, all that sort of good stuff. The original names was everything in between. Volume two is out now. Go order your copy. Thank you very much. Leave a great review all that sort of good stuff. Paul, where were we? Absolutely. Oh, well, let's put it this way. You can't plug your work enough. You know I am a uh, longtime fan of both <laughs> Name Explain and your writing, and of course, more than anything, an amazing co-host and friend. So by all means, go out there and get it, because it's worth every penny, every pence. Yes, well, fingers but crossed. <laughs> every ruble that you can afford. But in any case, today's an excellent episode because you and I are teaming up together. And in this case, we're talking about the legacy of Constantine, who actually dies in this particular decade. And his legacy is as one of the most notable and for good reason Roman emperors. Of course, his whole affiliation and relationship with Christianity and the fact that this guy may have died in this decade, 1700 or so years ago. 
his impact and legacy is still being felt today in many ways. So it's going to be really excellent. And I always love when you and I team up because it's a lot of fun and we really get to dig into a subject, which is really what 80 History is all about, the micro narratives that make up the macro narrative. But with all that in mind and all of that out of the way, it is time for our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Now, Patrick, we are starting this first go. Uh, both halves of this show, where we're double-teaming this. Mm. And we're talking about Constantine's legacy, which is enormous. Mm -hmm. And let's put it this way. There's going to be a lot of things that may sound odd at first, but in the end, they all kind of make sense. Now, I'll, I'll leave it just kind of at that. I'm hinting towards something very specific in particular, and I think you know what I'm referring to. But with that in mind... Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, you're referencing something very specific, something very strange Constantine did towards the end of his life, something you really would have thought he would have done sooner. Um, it might be in the title of this video, I'm not sure, or the title of this podcast video. I'll we will say. see, we will we shall see. see. But if not, Paul, I believe you're going to be dealing more with that side of things in your half of this uh, video. But... We yes, we've kind of looked to look at where Constantine is by now, and his days are drawing to a close. He was leading a noteworthy life, however, up until his deathbed. And we're going to kind of look at what happened in those final days of Constantine and that sort of big act, that big event he did very late in life that kind of you thought would have happened sooner. And the start of his final days kind of carried on how everything else in his life carried on. He spent his final years doing something he'd already done, and that was preparing for war. During his reign, Constantine had dealt with many of Rome's enemies. He had won victories against like, the Franks, the Goths, and the Samaritans, just to name a few. And it was finally his turn to go against perhaps Rome's most infamous enemy, that being the Sassanids. And certainly in this era. In this era, for sure. And it's great to hear. We haven't really talked about the Sassanids, but they're still going strong. And they're going to, kind of spoiler alert, they're going to outlive the Western Roman Empire, at least the Sassanids. Like, to some extent, yeah, that's just great. We haven't Very really mentioned so. them recently, but they're still there working away and they're doing their thing. You know, until the Muslim conquests in the 6th or 7th century, they're going to last well into the official Byzantine epoch. Mm. But what's interesting, though, we're not going to obviously get into it in this episode, is that for as much bloodshed as Rome and the Sassanids spilled against each other, they do have an interesting common adversary coming up. You might know it. It starts with H and ends with uns. <laughs> and that'll be a fun tale to tell but right now there's still a supreme great power rivalry in the middle east between these two powers there is but they're actually trying to make peace with one another supposedly anyway and constantine actually made contact with the king of the Sassanids, that's being shapur the second at this case and most noticeably we actually have a letter sent from constantine 
to Shapur, and it's a really interesting read. Now, before we even get to reading it, mm. how legitimate is this letter? Is this is this something that is this a genuine artifact? Is this is this prime? You know, is this primary source evidence in this case? Well, unfortunately, we aren't a hundred percent sure. Annoyingly, um, there's two schools of thought. Really, some people think it is a legitimate thing. Others think it wasn't exactly the case. But speaking of forgeries, we're going to talk about another famous Constantine-centric forgery a bit later on. But unfortunately, it's one of these things we don't know. But let's be positive right now. Let's just say, yeah, it is real. Let's say this is a real deal. This was a genuine letter. Constantine then, yeah, sent, we'll run with that. Yeah, to Shapur II. And how amazing is that? This is one of the earliest correspondence we have of the Middle Ages. This could be seen as one of the earliest documents of the Middle Ages. It's so, it's just from that cusp period. This is one of the first documents of the Byzantine Empire sending to the Sassanid Empire. It's an emperor to a king. And how fascinating is that? Hmm. I, I do find that interesting. Uh, I find it interesting how those titles are even chosen in general, but that's a discussion for another yeah. time, I reckon. Yeah, the same name, the same title explained this time. This is a history talk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if, anyway, let's just say this letter is real. And Constantine wrote to Shapur II, and he specifically said, treat the Christians of your kingdom well, Shapur II, because they're my people doing this, and you want them to be kept well. Though border raids persisted between Rome and the Sassanids. So in uh, 335 AD, Constantine sent his son, Constantius, to guard this border. Constantius. Constantius, apologies, Constantius. Uh, and so in the following year, 336 AD, the Sassanid prince Naresh invaded Armenia, which was a Christian Roman stronghold, part of the Roman Empire for quite some time. Uh, he, he actually came under Sassanid um, rule here. Uh, so suffice to say that this was the last straw for Rome. You know, they'd said, hey, treat your Christians well, be cool. And then they went and invaded part of the, the Roman Empire and claimed it. Not good. So plans were drawn up and an invasion of the Sassanids was all planned out. And this invasion was to be led by Constantine himself. And this this wasn't set up to be not just an invasion, but an actual Christian crusade. Constantine had wrote up plans for bishops and even a church-shaped tent, which is quite hard to say, church-shaped <laughs> tent, they were brought along too. This was supposed to be an all-out, let's convert the Sassanids to Christianity, let's make this a crusade. And it probably would have been spectacular, but none of it ever actually happened. Uh, by 336 AD, Constantine was already roughly 64 years old, and I don't think a modern-day 64-year-old would be very good at leading a crusade, you know, being on the battleground themselves, let alone an ancient a 64-year-old from antiquity, like, he was an old dude by then. I don't care if it's late antiquity, I don't care if it's last week. 64 on the field of battle is a tall order. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter what time period, that's, that's not going to happen. And in his old age, Constantine was growing weaker, and he actually rather got, he got rather sick towards the end, and this poor health caused this crusade to be called off and Constantine knew his end was drawing near and he needed to arrange some stuff before he actually went. So I have two questions hmm. here. First, do they have any idea exactly what ailment he was suffering from? Unfortunately not. I did have a good search about 
nothing came up in particular. This was the, I mean, there's probably some sort of play going around. I mean, not that he was actually in Rome because Rome was the greatest place. He was probably in Constantinople by now or uh, Byzantium yeah. as it was formerly Byzantium. known as. Uh, and so we don't actually know what was the case he was sick with, but it could have been a myriad of things. It could have been something life-threatening even to this day, or it could have been something that we simply sought out with an injection today, but we don't quite know. The other thing I'm curious about is obviously Armenia is at the heart of this matter. Hmm. Christian or otherwise, Armenia, unfortunately, as we've seen in our show when you're talking about whether it be the Sassanid predecessors, the Parthians, or the Sassanids as they exist at this juncture of our show at this point and Rome's role throughout it, they've been kind of, unfortunately, a geopolitical pawn between these greater players. And in this case, did they get Armenia back in their own sphere of influence? So Armenia is kind of a victim of its own geography, to put it in lack of a better term. It's right on the cusp. Like, it, it, not even like Turkey that spans the continent. Like, I mean, it, it's the Southern Caucasus, effectively. Yeah, and it's just, it's sort of very, you know, by the Caspian, it's kind of wedged between the Caspian and the Black Sea, that sort of bit of land with Georgia and one of the stands, I believe, Azerbaijan, I would say. It's a very... Azerbaijan, yeah. It's a very unique part of the world. Like, it does straddle between, you know, the, the Middle East, the Near East even, and, and modern Europe, and Europe as we have it. Yeah, well, one other thing that's interesting, you're mentioning the geography here, mm. and something that I think is actually kind of an interesting point to insert, because I do think it's useful, especially considering we're going to come back here many times mm. again, is that whether you're talking about the modern nations of the Caucasus and what we know as modern Russia, or back in its Soviet iteration, or even the Russian Empire days, but especially with the Caucasus here, they are most definitely what we would call Eurasia, which yeah. is totally its own thing. And I, I feel like it doesn't get that proper credit and clarification enough. We're really dealing in Eurasia. And in this case, being where they are in Eurasia between these two juggernauts, that's not fun. No. And yes, Eurasia is the perfect word for it, Paul. They really do straddle that fine line between being European and being Asian. But as for Rome getting them back, from what I could gather, I don't think they ever got Armenia fully back. Uh, from from what I read online, it's kind of split between Rome and the Sassanids before eventually becoming its own thing altogether, before eventually becoming modern-day Armenia as we have today. So anyway, as we were talking about, Constantine had to start preparing for his death. He was a very proactive person, quick clearly and by uh, 337 AD Constantine was very very unwell like I said we don't know what with but just very very poorly and this led to him making plans for once he was gone and one of the first things he did was actually find a resting place for his body and this was to be at the church of the holy apostles in Constantinople so there's a couple of things to mention here uh, Constantinople Byzantium has a new name this is kind of something we Kind of forgot to mention, which is kind of strange on my behalf, but this name they actually officially switched from Byzantium to Constantinople in uh, 330 AD. This is probably definitely something I'm going to be talking about in what we miss. It's something I've already talked about over on Name Explain, but I always Certainly. find it hilarious that it was Constantine himself who promoted this name change. It's very rare. Like we have places like Bolivia, but Bolivia wasn't named by Simon Bolivar, it was named in his honor. Constantine chose to name it after himself. That says an awful lot about a person. 
Well, as far as I understand it, and I could be wrong, so don't take me to church on this. <laughs> don't take me to church on this. <laughs> don't take me to court on this. Byzantium was very much a city that he very actively sought to develop to make it this. It wasn't already in this huge, like, sprawling, late antiquity urban planning fashion yet from what i understand it took a great deal of effort on his part yeah so uh, Con- it never had an eff- it was never officially called this but for some time constantinople constantine was calling byzantium nova roma which of course means new, uh, new rome, rome yeah. yeah so uh, yeah. another name that this city has had or many names of course it is modern day istanbul in case you didn't realize that it's had lots of names and it was definitely constantly. I think uh, other Roman leaders kind of had a soft spot for it as well. I know Diocletian, it wasn't his place of choice. It was perfectly placed to be what it became. I mean, geopolitically, it's undeniably an incredible location because yeah. you put it, it's right there on the Bosphorus. So it's straddling the Black Sea with the Aegean, then out to the Mediterranean. And its location has made it geopolitically significant in terms of its strategic worth for centuries now. Mm. And obviously, Constantine very much identified this quite aptly. It is still incredibly significant today. In fact, I do believe that right now, Turkey under Erdogan is actually looking to expand the to go beyond just the natural opening that is the Bosphorus. I think he's actually trying to turn Istanbul into an island by giving a greater passage between the Black Sea and the Aegean. Wow, that's that's impressive to hear. They should just make Istanbul their capital already. Daliman, I think, is their capital? Ankara. Ankara. Apologies, my bad. Yeah, like, just... Just do it. Just make Istanbul your capital. Same goes to the likes of Australia. Just make Sydney your capital. And you, Brazil, make Rio de Janeiro your capital. Just Yeah, Brazilia is a, is a, is a strange one. Brazilia is especially a bizarre city. The, these design capitals, mm. of which it appears that Constantinople, Byzantium, Istanbul, also shares that, along with some, a place like, for example, in my country, Washington, D.C. Mm. That is a design capital. We had others prior to that, but... They designed it right there on the Potomac for that very purpose that it serves to this day. Mm. And there's the job, but just some cities are more well known. Yeah. Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah. So I guess the last thing I have to say is why does Constantinople get the works? Do you not know the song? <laughs> you know what? I kind of know the song. And this may sound totally unbelievable <laughs> just being a kid that you don't. Yeah, it was like Istanbul, Constantinople. Is that yeah. the one you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. I just okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I got it. <laughs> it was nobody's business but the Turks, of course. But anyway, I, 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 I'm hip with the kids. Clearly, there's a song from the 30s, I think, definitely down to kids. But silliness Woo! aside, um, that church, the Holy Apostles, um, the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople, slash Byzantium, slash Istanbul. This church no longer does stand in modern Istanbul, I believe. It was destroyed. I can't remember its name, but the Grand Mosque that now stands in Istanbul, you know, the Hagia Sophia. I believe it's either that one or another one. I believe that now stands. Yeah, at least, I think... at least partially where this church. Well, that just shows the history of Istanbul. You know, it was the center of Constantine's Christian Rome, and now a huge Islamic mosque is in its place. It just shows the history and the different religions that have called this city their home. 
you know, I could be wrong, and I'm sure there'll be someone out there to correct me, but I do believe recently there's been some controversy about Erdogan going and I think taking it from being largely a museum mm. and and repurposing it now specifically to be a Muslim mosque. How interesting. I just presumed it was still a mosque. I didn't even really, I didn't know it primarily served as a museum these days. I would have presumed it was a mosque. How interesting to hear. Yeah, it's something interesting. It's it's caused uh, some controversy abroad, naturally. Of course, yeah. Turkey, for the most part, is predominantly Muslim, mm. naturally. Though, even though the state, I think, is technically supposed to be secular. I mean, if you look under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, he was really big into the secular stuff, as I recall. Mm. So there, there is something of an interesting tradition here in regards to the modern Turkish Republic as we understand it today. It's a really fascinating country, and basically the foundations of modern Turkey are being set in stone right here. And it's going to go through a lot of different names, from the Ottoman Empire to Turkey as we know it today. Uh, It's definitely going to be a key player as we progress in AD history. No doubt. No doubt. But aside from uh, that, one of the other big things he did was finally remove all traces of Diocletian's uh, crowning jewel, the Tetrarchy. That uh, had gone. Yeah. That had gone a long time ago. And this meant that Constantine knew that when he died, his three sons would take over. Uh, but he had not completely given up on life, however. In a last attempt to recover from his illness, Constantine left Constantinople. This would, of course, be the last time he left the city named after him. He wouldn't, spoiler alert, he actually wouldn't return there. As far as my, my, my research from what the history tells us, he wouldn't end up back in Constantinople. And he left the city to uh, reach some hot baths, some hot spring baths, uh, near modern Altanova in hopes that they would heal him. Uh, and it was in these waters, though, he realized he would not recover. So looking death in the eye, he knew there was one last thing he needed to do. And this is where that shocking part comes in. And Paul, you're going to talk about it a lot more, but I'm just going to give us the groundwork, a bit of a background behind this. And Constantine wasn't baptized yet. And that yeah. sounds crazy. Um, he needed to get baptized. This was the last thing he knew, knew he needed to do before death. Uh, he was not baptized into Christianity. The religion he had helped grow so much. It's odd to hear that he wasn't baptized right until the end of his life, especially to me and you, Paul, where baptism and Christian yeah. christenings are things traditionally done in infancy. But right out of the gate, one of the first things you do is get christened or baptized by your folks oh, yeah. traditionally. Of course, that's traditionally. It doesn't happen for everyone. And that's okay regardless. But he had his reasons for this. And as I said, while we associate uh, baptism and christenings with infancy now, this hasn't actually always been the case. It was relatively normal to be baptized later in life and especially towards the end of life. And this was because baptism was, and of course still is somewhat seen to this day as clearing someone of their sins. Yeah. And suffice to say, being a Roman emperor causes you to sin just a little bit, all that war and punishment and just genuinely dicking about as the head of Rome, you'd have to do some bad things regardless. So Constantine knew that as long as he wanted to helm the Roman Empire, his sinning would continue. And that's why he waited. So he didn't retire. He waited until he was on his deathbed to finally be baptized because he was pretty I'm, sure. I'm, 
I'm looking forward to getting into the details about that because it's because it is so counterintuitive to our modern conception of baptism and Christianity. It really is. Um, it really is different to how we expect Christianity to be done. This is what I've said so many times, Paul. I, I think one of the main subplots of AD history so far has been the foundation and building of Christianity and how Christianity yeah. wasn't what we have it as today right out the box. It wasn't like Jesus died. Then Christianity is what it is today. It changed, adapted, it changed throughout time. We've had those old versions of the Bible. We're having this initial kind of baptism going on here where you were baptized later in life. You know, it's a constantly changing thing. And it's just great tracking that story of Christianity through AD history. Yeah, there's no question about it. And like I said, we'll get into it in yeah. the later segment. Yeah. And at this stage of life, in his deathbed, he was pretty sure he wasn't going to sin any further. And Something else he also said, in his later life, Constantine became a cashman. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Have you ever heard of this term, Paul, a catcherman? A catcherman? No, no, I'm not familiar, but no, definitely, let, let us know, my friend. No, it's, so it's like another sect of Christianity, uh, so far, or like a thing in Christianity. So it's called catcherism. And a catcherman is supposedly, this is it explained very simply. We don't need to know too much about it. A catcherman is one who has received instruction in Christianity so they can be baptized. It's basically they've had some sort of divine message told to them saying, you have to do this and this before you can be baptized. I don't know what exactly it was. It was just a lot of the sources spoke about Constantine as being a catcherman and that being a factor as to why he got baptized so late. But this was another factor into, uh, into why he got baptized so late in life. It is interesting, and there's more that we're going to get into in a later in the in the later segment because, interestingly enough, this very topic, in so many ways, very is tightly interlaced with his general influence overall, both intentional and unintentional. And I, I like it how actually in this case we're kind of doing it backwards today, which is that. We bring it from largely, for the most part, with the exception of some of the greater geopolitical stuff that's going on, but in terms of him personally and his legacy and his relationship to Christianity, which is undoubtedly his largest lasting influence, we're going to get more into that in the later segment. And we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domine. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. As always, thank you, Anna. So in the case of this middle segment here, we're just going to take a moment to kind of briefly give you the story of how we even got to this point and how you're watching us now. And I think it's pretty fair to say that Patrick and I have been very pleased with how this show has developed. The listeners that have come and, and listened to us every couple of weeks and the contributions you made and just AD History kind of becoming its own thing. And I would think it was probably back in, what, April, when you and I first had that original discussion about doing just kind of some exploratory planning to see if this was something that was even possible for us and, and what was necessary. And 
pretty much since that time, you and I took about, what, three months to kind of dig into it and see what the practicalities were, what it meant for us on top of what we were already doing. And amazingly, it, it made sense. You say we, Paul. Um, it, it was mainly yourself, as, as always, the behind-the-scenes workhorse of AD History. Paul, you were the one who put together the whole concept of doing it on camera. I think I was like, oh, let's just keep it in audio. It's easier. Uh, I, I'm very much one for no, taking it. No, not, a, not, not at all. I, no, in fact, when I brought it up to you, mm. I remember at the time, I, didn't, I had no idea what you'd expect to say. <laughs> but you're like, yeah. Yeah, that's right, because it, it was basically a three-month feasibility study. Mm. Yeah, and we're here now, and I've got to say, you were a driving force behind getting us on video, and it's amazing how well it looks. I'm just looking at my own video camera now, and it's looking great. It's a really fun idea, and it gives it just gives the viewers who enjoy watching us on YouTube something to actually watch, which which is a bit of a change, and it's really looking forward to seeing how it develops. It it means I've got to look a bit more presentable and one extra day of the week. That goes with us both, to be sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like, yeah, no more doing this in our boxers. No, no, no definitely not. Well, certainly the top half. You never know what's going on down below. <laughs> but um, <laughs> As we have so learned in this day exactly, and age, right? Exactly, exactly. But Paul, you actually decided to actually put a shirt on for once, and I promise you guys, I, if you watch one of the first things, you know I like to normally dress quite like sillily, if that's a term. But I actually just but wore... always sharp. Yeah, sharp. That's a correct term for it. Uh, for the first time, I wore what I refer to as my art attack shirt. And my UK, the UK <laughs> listeners, they'll enjoy that. There's an old kid's show here called Art Attack, Paul. And the main, uh, the main host wore like a bright red jumper. So this is my art attack jumper. And I normally only wear, wear it when I'm just sort of slopping around the house. And 80 History Recording, they land on one of those days. So you're seeing it all here. Yeah, you know, it, it took us a while to get here. Mm. You know, we wanted to make sure that when we were doing this, we wanted to do it as best as possible. You know, I, we were talking about this, especially early on in the conceptual side of this thing, mm. where we knew what we didn't, we know what we didn't want to do, which was a couple of guys looking straight into their webcams no. and just kind of like this kind of, I don't know, kind of janky look that's become really commonplace. I mean, yeah. if the content is good, the content is good, right? Yeah. But you and I definitely both believe in production quality and, and doing it right and doing everything possible off the bat mm. to to make that and continually progressing it over time. And so we we allowed that to happen. And specifically starting, I think it was like the beginning of September when we did our first proof of concept. And this is kind of interesting, guys, since it's, it's been all audio up to this point. A couple of the last episodes, in fact, we were video taking the video of mm. them as we were doing the actual show yeah. because we had to learn, right? You know, there's there's lighting that goes into it. There's a, a whole special audio element that goes into it. All of these little things and details that are, are new to us and to make sure we got it as right as possible. And it's going to be developing. It's going to get better over time. I mean, right now, I while this all this around me at the moment looks very clean and nice and whatnot, but... And, and but the truth is, it's still not even completely done yet. Uh, you know, interesting little side point here is I think everybody kind of had their own lockdown project. Mm -hmm. And for me, and totally within concert with my wife, we decided to transform and renovate our living room into a, a media suite, a studio, and kind of make it a primarily studio media suite that was also a living room, but predominantly that. And 
it's kind of like been quietly our little project together that we've been having some fun with and it's still coming along. So you're looking in here now and you're seeing what, what that all looks like. And, you know, that's been a lot of fun. But this took time, you know, we, we definitely were very deliberate in how we wanted to do this. We really wanted to give you guys the best experience that was within our capabilities at the moment. Yeah. And it, what you've done with your living room, Paul, is incredible. I, I've got my own sort of office here. This isn't the office AD history began in. That was the basement in my old flat. And there's still some <laughs> stuff that needs to change here. Like you can see my big microphone arm piercing through the camera at the moment, but hopefully we'll try and figure out somewhere else for that to live. And there's a lot of unfinished Lego currently behind me, as you can see. That's from the move um, from a few months back. Hopefully one day that will all be rebuilt again. So you're going to enjoy seeing not only our offices change, but seeing us change as well, I imagine. There'll probably be days when we're more beardier than others or longer hair than others or looking different, but it's going to be fun. You're going to be able to see us change as AD history changes as well, I suppose. <laughs> your, your two favorite history podcasting jack wagons. Mm -hmm. So... It's fun. We wanted to do this for a long time. It it seemed like a natural hmm. development for the show. And I'll tell you this, guys. So this is really a good example of what you as contributors to the AD History Podcast are really doing and helping us do and giving you the better show, the AD History Podcast you deserve. And we can't thank you enough. And on top of that, we hope you enjoy this in its video form going forward. Like I said, over time, we're going to have it available on other on other platforms. Also, it's important to note that if you are still an audio-only listener and that's the way you want to remain, you will not lose anything. If for some reason there's something that comes up on the screen from the video portion, we're going to be sure to point it out and describe it to you, of course. Mm. We're not going to leave anybody out there. But this is a new feature of ours. We felt it made sense, and it was entirely possible due to your generous support in this epic tapestry of world history that we are unraveling episode by episode, decade by decade. And it's really exciting, Patrick. I mean, what do you think? It is super exciting. And I'm hoping everyone looks forward to this new era in AD histories. But yeah, but still an audio podcast. We, it, it's always going to be what it's always going to be about what you're hearing. But if you want to have a look at something else as well, now there's that option as well. There's nothing wrong with having more options. I've always been a big fan of that. And of course, if you want to help out AD History, but it's not possible for you to donate either PayPal or, or Patreon, we totally get it. Times are certainly hard. But if you are listening to us on your podcast app or podcatcher of choice, and it gives you the ability, I know not all do, but Apple certainly does, be sure to give us a five-star review and a glowing rating that really does help out the show a lot. It creates definite credibility on our part. It helps people find the show and get a better idea of what's going on. We love hearing it. And of course, if you're on YouTube, of course, subscribe and hit the ding dong for the notifications. Hit a like, leave a comment, help us out with the algorithm. That does never, that never is unhelpful. We can never thank you enough for doing that and just contributing your thoughts and, and really just having a wonderful interesting insightful and respectful discourse on history that's as good as it gets i mean at the end of the day for all the other things that one tries to accomplish in this sphere it's the connections you make with your audience and your listeners and the connections they make with each other you know we really really do appreciate you guys and are obviously very fond of you so now you have this option you can see us now not that we were ever hiding but this is a new thing and it's going to be a lot of fun. But with that, 
We're going to get into our third and final segment in terms of the influence and legacy of Constantine's life and rule. So us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Now, Paul, you're going to discuss the very last days of Constantine's life and that all-important baptism of his. But we're also going to talk about some of the bigger impacts Constantine made to the Roman Empire at large in a wider perspective. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly what we're going to do here. Because as I mentioned earlier, there's so much going on in terms of his legacy, but we left off in terms of his baptism. Now, today, of course, we think about this in a way where if you are born into a Christian family and you want to be baptized or Christian, Christian, whatever you want to call it, usually that happens when we are fairly we. Yes? Yeah, yeah. An interesting element of Christianity, specifically at this time, and certainly for converts to be sure, in the case of Constantine, they had an interesting take on this. So Bart Ehrman is some is a is a theologian and religious history and religious studies scholar from UNC Chapel Hill. Fantastic, fantastic school, and he has quite a reputation for having in, an intellect like a steel trap. He really knows what he's talking about. He's very, very rigorous, mm-hmm. and he has a great deal of acclaim to his name for good reason. And when he talks about this, so we think about baptism as an infant. But in this case, and especially in Constantine, as a convert, he actually very deliberately waited until his last days. And this is why. And this is according to Ehrman, is that in the book of Hebrews, it states that those who are baptized ultimately are making a commitment on their part to go and sin no more. However, if you lapse after that point, in their view at the time, you lose that salvation. And one of the defining elements that made Christianity so popular then, and it certainly is certainly true now, is that it's very heavily focused, not even so much on this life and this existence, but what comes next. Hmm. We've talked about that way, way back in the very first episode of AD History. And in this case, he decided to wait. And, and the question is, why? And I think we can do some pretty clear work on this in terms of coming to a reasonable extrapolation, which is to say that I don't think it's the science of the rocket to say that damn near impossible to be an effective Roman emperor that also is working within what would be considered in general then and now working within a Christian ethic as we've come to understand it. Isn't that interesting? Think about this for a moment. This is actually something interesting to throw around. Can you realistically be, certainly taking the case of Constantine, can you be a good emperor, and also be a good Christian at the same time. No. Well, it's hard to do as that, of course, all leads into the baptism idea, hence why he got baptized so late in life, once he was more or less done being an emperor. It makes all the sense in the world, that sort of thing, why they did it like that. 
And there's so much, of course, that Constantine did throughout the entirety of his life Mm. that most certainly would not comport with that idea of Christianity. No, no, definitely not. Because both political self-interest and the self-interest of the power that you lead very much are going to put you at odds with those theological values, that set of morals and ethics that I think we all generally know pretty well Mm. at this point. And he did a lot of really, really nasty stuff, as you would expect, including brutally executing members of his own family. Gosh. That's, uh, yeah. That would be yeah. an interesting interpretation of Christianity simply to hear as an intellectual exercise. Yeah. But that being what may. So he actually waited to the very end because he knew he couldn't do both. And that's kind of a, a workaround in a way, it's something of a theological loophole. Amazing how we, we operate in that fashion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's impressive but, stuff how we can justify what we do and the ways we justify it. Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking here about Constantine's greater legacy. And, of course, he has incredible legacy simply as a leader of the Roman Empire mm. at this time or in general. But a lot of his most lasting influences, in addition to everything that came with, say, Constantinople, Byzantium, Istanbul, whatever you choose to mm. call it, and of course, Christianity itself. And one of the interesting things is, though you, you can't credit it to him, but it certainly happened under his administration, let's, let's say, mm. is when Christmas, celebrating the birth of Jesus, which we don't really know when that happened. The only times we talk about in the, in, in the Gospels about Jesus' birth are in, they're in Matthew, mm. And they're in Luke, and they're not there to give you biographical details on names and all that sort of stuff that would go. They're infancy narratives, and they're written a very specific way, essentially, in short, to convey to the audience that the individual that they are talking about is very important. And it was a literary mechanism and convention that was very common at the time in the first century for those who would write such things. But in this case, the other holiday that this would compete with at that time is the Roman celebration of the festival of Saturnalia. Mm. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what is Saturnalia? Saturnalia is nuts. (laughs) It's so so nuts. But it it obviously evolved over time. So depending on where you were and when you were, your experience would be very different. So easily going a few uh, centuries prior, Saturnalia was a day, it was a single festival, that recognized and celebrated the end of the harvest and effectively the winter solstice. And it was much more mute. But by the time of the early 4th century, it was a rager party for (laughs) about a week. And some of the interesting parts about this is that it actually subverts social convention, which is to say that for that roughly seven days, Mm. the slaves become the master and the masters (sighs) become the slaves. And obviously, some Roman families were really, really large, and you had that patrifamilia because, naturally, Rome, certainly within the context of the time in which they lived, was a, a, a obviously very male-dominated mm. in that respect. The patrifamilia for families was the guy. And what they would do is they would elect a princeps of their own for the festival, and it would be somebody like either a small child or a slave or whatever the case was. And sometimes they actually took the slave thing 
uh, pretty far. Not only was the master serving the slave, but, you know, depending on the relationship that existed there, you could even, as, as one YouTuber say, even insult them within reason. And it was nuts. And like I said, seven days almost nonstop. These were huge festivals, drinking, eating, carrying on, and it usually got pretty nuts. Yeah, I was going to say, even Pliny the Younger would actually have to kind of mark out and plan out a place where he could find some solitude during that week just so he could get some work done. You, you, you kind of understand where the whole concept of toga parties came from when you hear about this, like yeah. dressing up as Romans for big parties. It kind of makes a bit more sense when you hear how they actually partied. Oh, yeah. And everybody, slaves, whatever the case may be, were always wearing their, mm. their Sunday best as it were, for this particular holiday. And Saturnalia generally fell around the 17th of December. And there was obviously gift-giving and all kind of stuff that we've become very accustomed to in our celebration of Christmas. Now, there's a common convention out there that Christmas was made this date, so that way it can kind of fall in line with Saturnalia and that, you know, there would be kind of a bridge there between the two. And there's a definite logic to that, but there's definitely a counter argument to this idea, which is that Christians were already celebrating mm. Christmas prior to this point. A lot of them would apparently celebrate it on the 7th of January. And the reason they did this is that it was nine months out from when they traditionally marked both the birth and crucifixion mm. of Christ which it would be, in that case, from their perspective, the 25th of March. You get the idea. Mm. And so, in many ways, yeah, there is this idea that either Constantine or some of the higher levels of the church in terms of bishops, let's say, put out this edict that, okay, yeah, we're all celebrating it now on this date. And that's a common theory, and there's definitely a logic to it. But one, like I said, they were already celebrating it already. Mm. Two, Romans were already in the practice of celebrating around that time of year. Three, apparently, and some of this comes from, and I mentioned him before, Andrew Hendry over at Religion for Breakfast, who does a fantastic job covering this sort of stuff. Mm. An amazing source of information if you're interested and you're in the YouTube sphere. Religion for Breakfast. And for the most part, in the East, let's say, they would actually be celebrating Christmas on the 7th of January. In addition to that, another point that he makes that's really interesting is that while there, it sounds nice that the church and perhaps even somebody like with the intervention of Constantine himself solidified the 25th of December, the church for the most part, especially on, say, the bishop level, wasn't really powerful enough to make this sort of edict and expect it to stick. Mm. So in a way, it kind of is an organic outgrowth of it, which I think is interesting. So essentially, Romans were celebrating anyway at that point, but it's really in 334 when we begin seeing Christmas celebrated on the 25th of December. And this, of course, happens under the administration rule and watchful eye of Constantine the Great. Oh, so you can thank Constantine for your Christmas presents. Among <laughs> others, my friend, among others, to be sure. Including Santa, of course, who's definitely real. Oh, he and in our next episode, mm -hmm. little tease, we're going to be talking about St. Nicholas. Mm -hmm. So a little plug for that. That's going to be fun. But of course, he had other forms of influence that ended up becoming really important. And one that I definitely want to mention here is that 
he actually codified and ensured that Sunday for Christians was the formalized day of rest or Sabbath, unlike the Jews, of course, where the Sabbath for them is observed from sundown on Friday to the sundown on Saturday. So you very much see the separation between the two and more of how there is this bifurcation between Judaism and Christianity, which is already happening anyway, but this is definitely a little boost to that. In addition, he also, in addition to like a whole bunch of other stuff that he commissioned, both Christian and, and some of which was pagan in nature, of course, he was directly responsible for the commissioning of old St. Peter's Basilica, which is which would have been located in the modern Vatican City. And of course, he also commissioned the all-important Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which, for those that are not familiar, is located in the Christian quarter of Jerusalem. And this particular site is believed both to encompass Golgotha, which means places of the skull, which is where they believe Jesus was actually crucified, as well as the location of his burial tomb, one of the most holy sites in all of Christianity that's located in Jerusalem to this day. In addition to that, and something that happened a lot during Diocletian's formal persecutions of Christianity back in 303-304 and the aftermath of, of that, Constantine was absolutely 100% instrumental in returning the confiscated property and belongings that was seized from those Christians during the persecution. Unfortunately, he also paid the favor for it as well, which is to say he also confiscated and took property and financial assets from pagan temples and various holdings of that nature and some certain pagan individuals. So, I, I wouldn't exactly call it justice as we would understand it, but that's certainly the way that he went and he operated so, in that regard. So would there have still been Romans refusing to join Christianity and still believing in the pagan gods then? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, but at this point, they have the upper hand. Mm. But it is important to note here, because I really do want to mention this to make it clear. We kind of mentioned it briefly, and this is something that is a common misconception. So we talk about Constantine bringing Rome into Christianity. And as we mentioned in the last episode, one is it was going in that direction anyway. That was organic. But in terms of making Rome the official state religion of the Roman Empire, that happens under Theodosius I, almost the better part of a century later. Yeah. yeah but about 380, I think I saw it happens. I I believe so. Yeah, around that sort of time. I remember that coming up. I think, oh, that's something to remember for the fu for a future episode. Yes. And yeah, I, I find that find that to be to be truly interesting. Yes, Paul. So now we actually get to the actual nitty-gritty of as as we hinted towards that baptism of Constantine himself. And this was a big old moment for him. So as long as, aside from all the other things he had uh, influenced over Christianity onto the Roman Empire. He actually had to become a Christian himself. And, and like most well-laid-out plans, it didn't go correctly in the slightest. So there was one ideal location that Constantine wanted to be baptized in, and that was, of course, the River Jordan. And this was, of course, because it was the yeah. river 
Jesus himself was believed to be baptized in. You know, Constantine held himself in that regard. So he wanted to be baptized in the best of the best, the River Jordan, along where Jesus was. The, he, he, the only thing he was missing was John the Baptist. Exactly, yeah. But due to his waning health, reaching the river was not going to be possible. As we mentioned, he's in, uh, he's in the hot springs at the moment, which is in the Turkish Maylight. It's, in, it's towards the sort of Constantinople part of Turkey in the north, eastish yeah. of Turkey, I believe. So, you know, it's a big old journey for a very sick, unwell person to make. So that never really happened. Um, so he instead wanted to return to Constantinople to be baptized in his own city named after him. Um, but that didn't happen either. During the journey back from the baths to Constantinople, he grew even more ill. And he actually made it to a city called Nicomedia. Nicomedia? Uh, yeah, and that's where Diocletian usually held his court. Yes, exactly. Di- uh, Nicomedia was Diocletian's capital of Eastern Rome when he split the empire up. Uh, he didn't label Byzantium as its capital. He had this city as his capital. And this city, unlike Istanbul, doesn't stand at all to this day. A city called Izmit, I think that's how it's uh, said, Izmit now stands in its place, which is a humongous city unto itself. But uh, there are still remains of Nicomedia, Nicomedia, however we're however we saying it. But unlike that, it, it, it didn't stand the test of time. But uh, being unable to journey any further, Constantine went, you know what, if I can't get baptized in Jordan or Constantinople, I'll get baptized here. So plan C, but that's better than no plan, I suppose. And he was actually baptized by one Eusebius of of Nicomedia, and that was the city's top bishop. And Eusebius was an Arian bishop, uh, with Arian being a sect of Christianity. Um, Worth noting here, this has nothing to do with uh, the Arian race, just to get that out of the way. No, 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 certainly not. Yeah, just as this being, you can't see the word written down here, listeners, but nothing to do with that just just in case just in case you that came to mind for you eusebius is such an interesting character mm. because as we mentioned a couple episodes back he was the personal biographer yes of constantine yes yeah and that's an, yeah another interesting fact he was also the guy who baptized him as well and the main difference with this air in christianity is that there's a lot to it but they don't believe in the holy trinity they see jesus as being sort of a rank lower than God and the Holy Ghost. Yeah, he's, sep- he's separate from him, effectively. Yeah, separate from him, yeah. It, 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 Divine, a... but not the, he's not co-equal. No, there, there's more to it. There's a lot more minutiae to it. But just for now, that's all you guys really need to know. And Yeah, I mean, we talked about it in some detail yeah, last episode. Yeah, and that was something that didn't gel with the uh, Roman Christian belief. And no. No, Arianism was even dubbed hearsay at the Council of Nicaea, as we talked about in the last episode as well. Uh, heresy. Heresy. Her say so that's a famous band here in the UK. <laughs> uh, so suffice to say, Constantine being baptized by an Arian priest was not a good thing. And Constantine was pivotal to Christianity's rise in Rome and in modern Europe to this day. Europe wouldn't be the predominantly Christian continent is if it wasn't for Constantine converting the empire from its paganism. So to be baptized by a bishop from a different Christian sect was not good at all. But he didn't have much choice in the matter. Uh, Eusebius was the only bishop in town, the highest bishop in town, and Constantine was literally running out of time. So this led to the Romans and Christians of the future slightly changing the story. Go figure. Yeah, and uh, as emperor, as emperor, Constantine did not exactly rule out what would be considered his Christian ethic. And 
Is it even no, just like we talked yeah, about? Is that even possible? Like to 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 be a Christian and emperor at the same time, as we talked about. But let's highlight uh, Constantine's other. And if you're watching the video, you see I just gave it the bunny is his other baptism. Yeah. That's the point of oh, video. You can l- see where we do air quotes. Exactly. Yeah, you can see our air quotes uh, in the yeah. with your own eyes, not just we hear them with your ears. So <laughs> by the fifth century or so, uh, Rome and Europe was staunchly Christian, and they weren't Aryan Christians either. You know, it's it's interesting because this whole back and forth, and if you listen to our episode on the first Council of Nicaea, you know that. The point of view that was championed by St. Alexander of Alexandria, who is also the Bishop of Alexandria, where this is kind of a bit of a showdown, that at the end of it, they they discussed a variety of issues, but this was the big one, where the idea that in the case of Jesus, he was co-eternal with God. He was one and the same. He was God-made man. When he died, he died and went and was raised in this non-corporeal form, and he existed from the beginning, whereas the idea in Arianism is that he was created hmm. by the Father and that he was divine, but it was something like a slightly lower-ranked divinity. Jesus wasn't God itself. He wasn't God the Father. And you can see where these two contrasting issues come about. But what's interesting is even though the, the view that Jesus was co-eternal with God won out hmm. at Nicaea, as we mentioned, it didn't end the debate. One is because Arian went on and kept teaching. Two, over time, in this case, Constantine kind of warmed up to this idea, and Arian in general, to be specific, and his son, who would succeed him, Constantius II, very much bought into this idea of how Arian looked at Jesus. Now, in the long run, we know how it ultimately worked out, even though, as we mentioned in the private episode, excuse me, as we mentioned in the previous episode, it's something that it is something and an idea that hasn't even really been solved today. And you believe what you believe, and that's fine. Mm. But very much so, it was not a straight thing. It wasn't we dropped the gavel at Nicaea, end of debate. And in the case of Constantine, he ended up warming up to it. His son, Constantius II, very much did so as well. But in the long run, we know the predominant feeling for many Christians in this case. But what's interesting is even though Constantine ultimately called for and convened the first council of Nicaea, when you got right down to it, and after three months of this, he basically found this whole argument to be a matter uh, to him at the end of it, almost to be a, a point of supreme indifference and the height of tedium, once again, according to Bart Ehrman. So, that's rather interesting to say the least. He just he knew where a holy war could go and he wanted to see if they could establish some sort of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it had its peaks and troughs Arianism, but at the t- at this time it kind of wasn't the popular uh form of religion. So having Constantine Christ- Christian christened the uh, Christened by baptized. So, baptized. That's a better word. Having Constantine baptized uh, by an Arian priest was not a good thing. So, a different version of events kind of became the popular story as to how Constantine got christened. Uh, his actual origin was kind of swept under the rug. Uh, and this new story kind of emerged in the fifth century. And in this version of events, Constantine was baptized in Rome itself so the actual city of rome by one yeah. pope sylvester the first um 
And this story fitted in much more neatly with Christianity at the time's understanding of religion. And for many, this is the true, for many at the time anyway, this was the true story of Constantine's baptism. It just fit all the more better with what they wanted it just it just made for a better narrative and there's even a fantastic piece of art that depicts this historical event that simply did not happen and it was done by a uh, Jean Francesco Penine he was an assistant of the Renaissance painter Raphael not the turtle obviously and <laughs> you've always got to mention that when one of those names come up yeah yeah, yeah you do and uh, this is pieces which is simply called the baptism of Constantine and it shows yeah. him in Rome being baptized by Pope Sylvester and obviously this is didn't happen and i've got a picture of this painting um in the notes pool i'm sure we'll share it on the socials but it's a breathtaking painting totally. amazing piece it's 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 truly an outstanding portion of what we would consider to be what this came out of what this was italian renaissance this was uh, early 16th century yeah so uh, you look at it it's right in that style and you can definitely see the influence yeah. of Raphael to be sure yeah it, 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 it's a it's a wonderful piece but it's just it would be even nicer if it was depicting a true event in any capacity but it simply isn't yeah i'm looking at a a copy of the school of athens by mm. Raphael over there on the wall you can't see it at the moment but you can definitely understand where that influence comes in. Yeah. There's a a clear genealogy of influence that is immediately yeah. apparent. He knew how to paint a picture, and so does his assistant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but something, simply put, is changing history to fit the narrative is no new thing. It's probably stuff we've seen in the past nope. of AD history, and it's definitely things we'll see in the future. You bet your booty. And something interesting is this lie actually grew even bigger in the 8th century with the donation of Constantine. And the donation of Constantine is a really interesting thing. This is a forged document. Oh, I was going to say, is it a lie or is it a revision? <laughs> is it a, something to think about? Yeah, something to think about indeed. But uh, with the donation of Constantine, so this was a, came about in the eighth century. It's just it's just an interesting little tidbit here. Uh, this was a forged document that claimed Constantine was healed by the Pope before he died, and as a thank you, uh, Constantine supposedly gave the entire Western Roman Empire to the Christian Church after his death, and. We don't really know where this document came from exactly, but it's thought that this document came into being uh, to give the church a piece of paper, to give them a mandate of sort of owning so much land. They were like, no, look, we're we allowed this. Constantine himself said we could have this land. And it's, of course, rubbish, but it's really interesting nonetheless. And I'm sure we'll look into it once we hit the 8th century. Oh, un undoubtedly so. A I mean, we, I mean, we look at Constantine's influence as a whole, where he came from. He's effectively... And from what we can tell, in terms of his mother, was probably not either. He was she was either a consort or a concubine of his father Constantius, and born in the modern day Balkans, who came to influence history not just of Rome but of Christianity and by extension of the world in profound ways. Some of which was quite intentional. Some of it was undoubtedly unintentional. Hmm. But I'd like to think. You and I, and I mentioned this a couple episodes back as we wrap here, mm. that there's a great saying that every great figure from history gets one sentence. So mm. Lincoln freed the slaves. Mm. You get the idea. And that the one Constantine gets most is that 
he made the Roman Empire Christian. And that's a, a half truth because mm. it was co- it was becoming that way as well, but he was definitely the great boost to it. Mm. But I'd like to think, as I mentioned a couple episodes back now, that those who are listening, wherever you may be listening, have a greater understanding of this figure that is still so widely studied, hmm. but also thanks to certain individuals, <coughs> Dan Brown, <laughs> also is very misunderstood <laughs> as well, and unfortunately so. But that wherever you may be listening, you now have a better understanding beyond that one sentence. Yeah, and let's wrap things up very quickly here, Paul. Let's get on to Constantine's actual death. So. He was baptized in 337 AD, and he eventually passed away of his ill health on the 22nd of May, 337 AD. So same year as he was baptized, he died. He was 65, a decent age at the time, and as mentioned, his sons took over, and that will be a story we cover the next time. And as you talked about, Paul, Constantine's legacy is huge, and he did so much stuff. Perhaps, as you said, a half-truth of it, brought Christianity to Europe and Rome made it Christian. You could argue there's a lot more to it than that, as we've highlighted. But let's end this with one last question. We haven't spent too much time on this. Was Constantine the last noteworthy emperor of Rome? When I think about, when you think about the great, like if there was to be a Mount Rushmore of Roman emperors, I don't think there'll be any post-Constantine of the ones like your average schmo knows, like your Hadrian's, your Augustus's, your Constantine's. I think this might be the last of them. In terms of an emperor who ruled the entirety of, of this massive ancient superpower, he might very well be, though this is up for debate and we can talk about it again at a later point, he might be the punctuation point. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes after that punctuation point. The really, I think I've looked into it before, like there's some really bizarre, like the last Roman emperor, like the, especially of Western Rome, like who even was he by that point? What did they even mean by that point? I'm looking forward to seeing what happens there. That makes two of us. Brilliant stuff as always. And we'd like to thank you for listening and us here, you there. And we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in history, as well as my reader submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II related questions, which if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye. Thank you. And take care. Yes. Thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC 
as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching adhistorypodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.